as you're turning there, Ezra chapter number 7, we're going to be in verse number 10 to begin with. And I want to quickly recap what we've looked at so far. We uh, have seen, at least last week, we saw that Ezra finally introduced to us. We've been in this book now for months, and we've been in other books besides this, and we've now worked through six chapters and not one time is the name Ezra mentioned until we get to Ezra chapter number 7. And what we find is that God sends Ezra for a very specific reason. Ezra was not sent in particular to rebuild the temple. The temple has already been mostly rebuilt, if not completely rebuilt at this time. Uh, Ezra is not there in order to uh, encourage the people and, and guide them in their process of rebuilding. That's something that was done by Hezekiah and Zechariah. And so as we worked our way through this, uh, the one thing that we've concluded is that Ezra was sent at this particular time for a purpose, I believe, of guiding as the pastor of Israel this entire nation and this entire movement. He literally was sent to be what you and I would consider a modern-day pastor. That's what he's doing with Israel here and now. And his purpose is simple, to make sure they stay where they're supposed to be at. All throughout Israel's history, they've gone back and forth, haven't they? Doing what they're supposed to do, and then they fall away. Then they do what they're supposed to do, and then they fall away. And God sends Ezra to make sure that this time is different. That this time they stay faithful and true throughout the process. That they don't give in to other gods. That they don't give in to other ideologies that they stay true to the Word of God. And so God sends Ezra, who what we're told, what we see here, is an incredible teacher. And his ability to teach is derived from his knowledge of God's Word. He took time and energy and effort and devoted himself and invested himself in God's Word in such a manner that he would be able to teach the nation of Israel. And we looked last week at what made him a great teacher. Uh, I believe uh, that Ezra was a great teacher because he had a great family. He had a great upbringing. He was trained and taught uh, the things of God by his family, by his fathers and by his mothers and his grandmothers and his grandfathers. And they all together instilled in him a, a sense of godliness uh, and a sense of seriousness about the things of God. Not only did Ezra have a great family, he also had a great focus. He was focused on what God wanted, and he was focused on what God said. He didn't really care about anything else. Honestly, it's a very wonderful way to live. I've lived both sides of that fence. I've lived in a place where I cared what everybody else thought. I lived in a place where I cared what in particular, you know, particular people thought. There's no better place to live than living just where God wants you to be and not really caring about what other people say or what other people think. Okay, Ezra cared about what God wanted. He cared about what God said. That was his focus. Number three, Ezra was a great teacher because there was a great force behind him. God was his authority. And in my opinion, that's what separates the good teachers from the great teachers. Good teachers are those who are articulate. They have a, a built-in skill for speaking and teaching and whatnot. But it's whenever God backs with authority the teaching of the teacher. That's what I believe catapults. When you read about uh, you know, Charles Spurgeon, when you read about D.L. Moody, when you read about some of these great men of God down through the ages, I think what catapulted them to a place of prominence was not their ability, 
What catapulted them to a place of prominence was the fact that they had placed and submitted their lives into the hands of a force far greater than themselves, who then pushed them to where he wanted them to be. So Ezra had a great force behind him. And then number four, Ezra had a great formula. Uh, He literally personified Romans chapter number 12, verses 1 and 2 of being a living sacrifice. He didn't stay in Babylon. He went where God wanted him to go. He, he, He found himself in a number of uncomfortable situations throughout the course of his life, not knowing what the outcome was going to be. And ultimately, he goes to a nation who at this time was experiencing a revival, if you will, but that's not their history, and he knows that. He knows how difficult it's going to be to do the job that God's called him to do. What does he do? He leaves the comfort of Babylon. He leaves the influence of Artaxerxes, and he goes to what was to him a strange land, Jerusalem, to try to begin pastoring a newly formed nation. This was not going to be an easy job, but he did it because he knew it's what God wanted him to do. Now, with all of that said, I want to point out some things to you here in the first few verses that we've already looked at. The fact that God used Ezra's character to profoundly impact not only the king, not only the nation of Israel, not only the priesthood, but ultimately the entire world was impacted by Ezra's character. Look at it with me. Verse number 6, the Bible says, This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given, and the king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. The first thing that we see is that Ezra's character profoundly impacted King Artaxerxes. There was a special kind of influence that Ezra had on Artaxerxes that apparently no one else had. Everything that Ezra asked of this king, this king did it. And we're going to find out a little bit later why he had such an impact on Artaxerxes. But the second group of people that he had an impact on was Israel. Look at verse number 7. And there went up some of the children of Israel. Ezra begins this movement from Babylon into Jerusalem. And as he's beginning this movement, there's an entire group of people that start going up with him. Now, there was already a first batch of folks. If I remember right, I think the number was somewhere around 45,000 children of Israel that went up into Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. That's already happened. Now there's this second wave of people going up into Jerusalem, and Ezra is the one leading the charge. His character used to greatly impact the nation of Israel. Number three, his character was greatly used to impact the priesthood. Look at what it says, the rest of verse number seven. And of the priests and of the Levites and the singers and the porters and the Nethanims, unto Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. And so not only the Israelites follow him, but the entire priesthood, the Levites, they all follow Ezra back into Jerusalem where they were supposed to be the entire time. And then we see in verses 8 through 10, ultimately the entire known world is impacted in its own right by Ezra. Look at verse number 8. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem, according to that good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Artaxerxes puts out a word, and we're going to look at this word here in a moment. But he puts out a word in these next several verses ultimately stating the entire world needs to go on notice. 
Ezra is the man of God. Israel is the people of God. And there is only one God in heaven. Artaxerxes is about to put this word out. And it's going to be a decree that would go out throughout the entire world. And I believe the person directly influencing King Artaxerxes to believe that and to go for that was Ezra. All right? And so literally the entire known world is impacted by Ezra's character. What, what Ezra did, and it's absolutely genius. I don't think it's disingenuous at all. But what he ultimately did is he leveraged his influence to accomplish great things for the cause of the God of heaven. It's the same thing that you and I ought to be doing today. Each and every one of us have our own sphere of influence. We have our children, we have our spouses, we have our church, we have our workplace, we have our community. We each have our own sphere of influence. And what God wants us to do is He wants us to leverage that influence to accomplish great things for Him. We can each be doing this, and that's what we're going to see Ezra doing here today. So let's jump in here with this thought. Not only was Ezra a great teacher, but we're going to look at Ezra the great influence. Ezra, the great influence. We're going to start by looking at the preparation for influence in verses 10 and 11. I know we've already studied verse 10, but I think it plays right into what we're going to see King Artaxerxes say here in his letter. Verse number 10, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Verse 11, Now this is the copy of the letter that the king Artaxerxes gave unto Ezra, the priest, the scribe, even a scribe of the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Laid out for us in verse number 11 is what King Artaxerxes really thought of Ezra. What King Artaxerxes really thought of Ezra, he revered him, he respected him, he appreciated him, he saw him as a very knowledgeable man, but not just as a knowledgeable man, as a very wise man. He valued his opinion. He valued his perspective. We're not given all the interchanges and, 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 and different things that are said between Ezra and King Artaxerxes, but there's no doubt now that for years, Ezra has been directly influencing King Artaxerxes as far as the true and living God is concerned. How did he reach this place of prominence? How did he get to a place where God was using him in this extraordinary way as the priest, the scribe, that was directly connected with the king of one of the greatest nations the world's ever known. How did this happen? Well, I think verse 10 is the secret to it all. He prepared himself for this. And you see, if we're not careful, we look at our lives and we think of ourselves as so insignificant, don't we? We think of ourselves as so small. So small, in fact, that if there's ever a potential to have an influence, to make a difference, we and listen, humility is a great thing. Ezra must have been an extremely humble man. But if we're not careful, we think so little of ourselves that when God wants to take us and use us to have an impact or to make an influence in someone's life, we think, oh, there's no way He can use me. And we'll actually justify not preparing to be an influence in our world by saying, surely God can't use me. I'm thankful that Ezra didn't do that. Ezra took the approach of, God, whatever you want. However you want it, whenever you want it. I don't care, God, just whatever you want. And that needs to be our mindset. God, whatever you want. 
And in the process of, of saying, God, whatever you want, he was preparing himself to be the influencer that God wanted him to be. What phases or what stages made up his preparation? Well, first of all, he sought God's word. In verse number 10, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. You know, the very first stages of preparation in my life, we had, we, you've been down our gravel road. I think all of you have, right? Okay. When you go down, uh, you go around the S curve as you're coming toward my house. You go around that first big S curve where the mean people live up on the hill. They're mean. They actually let their dogs loose on you. I went and knocked on their door one time to hand them a, a gospel track, an invitation to one of our church events at Putnamville Baptist Church. And she literally opened the window and she said, you know I got a big dog in here. I said, yes, ma'am. And she goes, I'll turn him loose on you if you don't get out of here. And I said, well, I just got a gospel track. She goes, boys, go open the door. I kid you not. I got out of there, buddy. I did leave the gospel track in the door, though. They never came. <laughs> turn them loose, boys. I like it. No, anyway, I say that to say, you come around that S curve, and that, that's where they live up there, and then you go over that hill. And then as you're going down the hill, you know where the wood bridge is, right? There's the wood bridge, and then there's that great big tree with that concrete wash back a little ways from it. That stretch of road for about seven years of my life was my sanctuary. It's where I went to meet with God. And I would walk back and forth, back and forth, back and forth down that road, talking to the Lord and spending time with the Lord. And then I could show you, I went and took pictures one time. Yeah, this is back and forth. I'm getting old. This is back before cell phones had the ability to take pictures. Or they could take pictures, but you couldn't see really what they were. And so I went and bought. And cameras back then were like $800 a piece. So you couldn't just go buy a nice camera. And so I went and bought one of those throwaway cameras. And the only reason I bought it is because I had about eight different places back in that classified forest that's behind my house now where I would go and I'd spend time with the Lord, reading His Word and studying and, and, and just thinking on the things of God. And I wanted to take and document that. I wanted to take pictures of those places where the Lord had met with me back there in the woods. The reason I'm telling you that is to say we each need to find our sanctuary. If you don't have one already, you need to find one. And you need to go there. And you need to spend time there. And if we're not careful, and this is, this is my life today, because my life has gotten so filled with responsibility, I almost have a tendency of looking at time like that as a waste of time. I don't have time to go and do that, but I'm here to tell you that is the secret to success in the Christian life, is taking time out of our busy schedule and going to that special quiet place and spending time in the Word of God. I believe with all my heart Ezra has done that, and I believe that's what God noted in his life moving into this, this era of his, of his life. So first of all, he seeks the Word of God. Number two, he obeys the Word of God. Notice what it says there. It didn't have to say this. It could have been implied. But I think there's four words in this verse that may very well be the most important four words describing who Ezra is. It says he seeks the law of the Lord and to do it. You know, you can come to church and you can listen to the preaching, but if you don't do it, what good is that? That technically is a waste of time. To come and to hear and to listen, but then not to go and do? What's the point? 
Same thing's true if you're reading your Bible on a regular basis. You can read it and read it and read it and read it, but if you're not actually doing it, what's the point? You're kind of wasting your time. That wasn't Ezra. Ezra didn't only read the Word of God and seek the Word of God, but then he put into practice the things that he was reading and learning. And then, after all of this was taking place, he goes to the next step. It says, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. He began teaching God's Word. You know, I'm just going to put this out there, and I'll let it fall where it falls. But there's not a one of you that could not be an effective teacher of God's Word. You've all been raised right. You've all been taught right. You've been in the right places at the right times to learn and to grow. And there's not a one of you that will not, Lord willing, if it's not already happening, which I believe it is for each of you, you each are already pillars in our church. But as time goes along, you're going you're gonna to take the baton ultimately and completely from the past generation, and you're going to be the ones carrying it. You're going to become the great leaders of our church, of our community, ultimately of our world. And that's exactly what takes place with Ezra. He does not cut God off in his ability to use him like we do. We say, God, I'll learn, I'll obey, but Lord, just don't ask me to do something uncomfortable like teaching. Don't ask me to do something uncomfortable like participating in this event or that event or this outreach or that outreach. God, don't ask me to try to share my faith with somebody else. God, don't ask me to do that. It's uncomfortable to do that. And I'm here to tell you, it's still, I know you're not going to believe this, but it is still uncomfortable for me every single time I get behind a pulpit. I don't think it should be comfortable. I don't think that a person should feel warm and cozy and comfy stepping into a position where they're teaching a group of people especially things that are eternal. I think it should be a very weighty thing. And, and although it is a weighty thing, although it is a heavy thing, it doesn't mean that we should cut God off and say, no, God, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. Ezra goes on and he does what God asks him to do. And with that as his preparation, having sought God's Word, having obeyed God's Word, having preliminarily taught God's Word, then God gets a hold of his life and he puts him right where he wants him to be. The preparation for influence. Number two, we see the product of influence. What happens when we open up our lives to allow God to use us to influence the lives of other people? What is the result of that? Well, the first thing I see, the result of Ezra's influence that God had given him, the first result was friendship. I like this. Look at verse 12. <clears throat> this is the letter. Well, let's look at verse 11 to kind of get us going into verse 12. Now, this is the copy of the letter that the king Artaxerxes gave unto Ezra, the priest, the scribe, even a scribe of the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Now, verse 12, this is the letter, Artaxerxes, king of kings, unto Ezra, the priest, a scribe of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace, and at such a time. I believe, based on the tone of this letter to Ezra from the king, I believe that we can pull from this that there was a special bond between these two. Not only in the fact that Artaxerxes did what Ezra said to do, 
But there is going to be a back and forth communication between Ezra and the king. Ezra doesn't just write King Artaxerxes off and Artaxerxes, I don't believe, wants to be written off. He wants to have a, a connection still with Ezra beyond this moment. Even though Ezra is leaving him, even though Ezra is going to a faraway land to do big things, Artaxerxes doesn't want to just cut this off. He sends a letter with Ezra and he says, perfect peace and at such a time. You know, one of the first things and maybe the most important things that develops from you having a position of influence in another person's life is a deep bonding friendship that forms that God wants to use. I just told Simeon this last week. We were out here in the car. Just wait till this starts happening with all y'all's kids. I'm out here in a truck and a guy, you've seen the guy that likes to skateboard out here? You know who I'm talking about? Some of you have maybe seen him, some of you haven't. He's in his late 40s and he just lives in one of the houses down the street and he comes over and he skateboards on our skateboards on our concrete. And I've talked to him maybe three different times now. And slowly over course of time, he's warmed up to me. The first time I ever talked to him, he just like he was cut and dry and he just went home. I mean, literally, I start talking to him, he's just like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he walks away. I'm like, that was strange. And he come back a second time, and I had just happened to be inside the building, and so he thought I wasn't going to come out. And I saw him out there, and I thought, I'm going to go talk to him again. So we start talking. This time I warmed him up because I, I, there was a guy down in Florida by the name of D.R. Bono, wonderful, sweet-spirited man of God. I, I respect him so much even to this day. And D.R. used to be a professional skateboarder. He actually skateboarded with Tony Hawk. He was in all kinds of magazines and all, all kinds of stuff back then in the days where skateboarding was a big deal. And so I was telling this guy about this. Well, that kind of caught his attention and slowly warmed things up. And then the other day, we're out there in the truck waiting for Emily to come out. And uh, this guy comes over. This was, right at, this was on Sunday, or this was on, on Wednesday. This was on Wednesday night. He comes over and he starts skateboarding and he's trying to do this trick on one of the car bumpers. And he was struggling with it and I was going back and forth debating. I didn't know when Emily was going to be out and I didn't want to leave the boys in the truck by themselves and so I was going back and forth. And finally Simeon goes, Daddy, aren't you going to go talk to him about God? Literally, that's how he said it. Daddy, aren't you going to go talk to him about God? And I said, well, Bubby, I'm just sitting here wondering how I'm going to approach it. And so I got out and we started talking and he'd already been there for maybe five minutes. And he was just, he sets up a little camera and he tries to record himself doing these tricks. And so uh, he'd already been doing this for a few minutes and I could tell he was about to wrap it up. So I thought I'd jump out, talk to him again. And so I start talking to him and we had a great conversation. This is the first time that I've talked to him that I felt in my heart like he wasn't just closed off to me. That there was a, there was a connection forming, a friendship that's beginning to form. And... Uh, he kind of he did cut it off because he needed he had something he wanted to get home for and it was time for him to go and so he left. I got back in the car and Simeon goes, "How did it go, Daddy?" I said, "Well," I said, "It went really good." He said, "Well, what'd you tell him?" And I said, "Well, I I just talked with him." And he kind of gave me a look and I said, "Bubba, you need to understand something." I said, "People don't care what you know until they know that you care." Simeon apparently misunderstood that phrase. All week long, it's the weirdest thing. <laughs> I said this. Here's the, this deep, profound moment in, in our lives together. 
And somehow he completely twisted this thing around. And now, for some reason in his head, uh, every time he gets ready to say something that he knows, he asks me if I care about something. <laughs> and so like the other day, we're sitting in the living room. And he goes, Daddy, do you care about Mommy? I said, yeah. He goes, okay. And then he started telling me something he knew. <laughs> and so he, and he keeps doing this. All week he's been doing this. So I've, I'm going to have to explain that further. But that, <laughs> it, it is... It is true that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that is the kind of person I think Ezra was. He knew a lot, but I think he, he, he coupled that well with caring for people. And that's why our Xerxes is able to come to him and say, perfect peace and at such a time. That's his way of saying, I want you to know that we're good, especially right now that's important for you to know. Because you're leaving, I'm staying, this nation is being rebirthed, it could cause conflict, but I want you to know that we're at perfect peace and at such a time. Friendship is the first thing that results from the influence that God gives you in the lives of the people you're around. The second thing that Ezra's influence resulted in was freedom. Freedom. Look at verse 13. I make a decree that all they of the people of Israel and of his priests and Levites in my realm, which are minded of their own free will to go up to Jerusalem, go with thee. You need to understand in verse 13, this is some of the first tastes that we get in history of real religious liberty. Before now, this was not normal. And from this point, There will be eras and seasons throughout human history where religious freedom will see the light and there will be times where it sees darkness. But as Artaxerxes puts out this decree, we are given the foundation of what I believe our founding fathers utilized to determine how they were going to set up our nation. I really do believe that. Look at verse 14. For as much as thou art sent of the king and of his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of thy God which is in thine hand, and to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered unto the God of Israel whose habitation is in Jerusalem. What he's literally saying here is he's saying, I want you to do whatever you believe is right to do before your God. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like our First Amendment. I believe with all my heart that God has used Ezra's influence to completely alter history here. Artaxerxes has a unique perspective of religion, and here was his perspective. Whatever God lays on your heart to do, that's what I want you to do. And he goes on later on in these verses to show us why he says that. Ultimately, his concern was he didn't want judgment to fall on him as the king and on his sons. He was concerned if this is the true and living God and I withhold them from worshiping him and from following him, then the judgment is going to fall on me. I think it's very wise. Ezra's influence resulted in freedom. Number three, Ezra's influence resulted in funding. Verse 15, we already read, they're going to give 
this, this gift to them, verse 16, and all the silver and gold that thou canst find in all the province of Babylon with the free will offering of the people and of the priests offering willingly for the house of their God, which is in Jerusalem, that thou mayest buy speedily with the money, uh, bullocks, rams, lambs with their meat offerings and their drink offerings and offer them upon uh, the altar of the house of your God, which is in Jerusalem." Is it not clear to you as it is to me that apparently Ezra had been teaching him the law of God? How would he know what animals needed to be used? How would he know what offerings would be offered? How would he know the kinds of things that he implies that he knows here had Ezra not been influencing him in the law of God? And as a result of this, Artaxerxes knows they're going to need some funding. And so what does God do? He uses Ezra's influence to provide funding for God's people to be in immediately to offer sacrifices. It's not going to take them a year or two to build up the funds that they need. They're able now to, to do exactly what God wants them to do immediately. So Ezra's influence excuse me, results in friendship, freedom, funding. Perhaps most importantly, Ezra's influence resulted in fear. The fear of God. You see, the fear of the Lord leads to a reverence in the people that we're around. Have you not seen this? I hope you have. As you follow God in your life, you have coworkers that you're around, or you have different family. That's a big one that you're around. And initially, they're a little more brazen in their antagonism against the things of God. But as you live for the Lord and as you try to utilize your influence to make a difference in your family's lives and in your co-workers' lives, the same people who would just go out and say anything and do anything, now when they're around you, they act different. Why is that? Because your influence on their lives has begun to instill within them a healthy fear of God. Kurt's not here so I can say this. I know this has happened in Kurt's work life. Because somebody that I know that doesn't go here told me so. Kurt is the same guy at work as he is here. Plain and simple. I know that again by testimony of somebody that doesn't go here that knows Kurt. That I know. Now y'all are wondering who it is. I'm not going to tell you. There are trips they go on that they will specifically not do certain things because Kurt's on the trip with them. I think that's pretty awesome. It's a perfect example here of what I'm trying to say, that God uses your influence to instill reverence in the hearts and lives of people who otherwise would have zero reverence whatsoever. And that's what happens in Ezra's relationship with Artaxerxes in Babylon. What happens in the heart of Artaxerxes? Well, first of all, he develops a reverence or a fear for the will of God. Look at verse 18. And, who, and whatsoever shall seem good to thee and to thy brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, that do after the will of your God. Literally, he's saying, whatever God wants, that's what I want you to do. There's going to be a surplus of supplies. There's going to be a bulk amount of gold and silver that's given, so much so it's going to be more than they'll ever need. And Artaxerxes doesn't say, bring me the excess gold and silver. Bring it back to me. He says, I want you to do with it whatever God shows you to do with it. 
He has a reverence for the will of God. Number two, he has a reverence for the work of God. Verse 19 through 22. It's time, isn't it? I'm here I'm just getting excited and I got to stop. Well, we can, we can stop here. Let me make a note where I'm stopping. Nothing worse than getting to the next week and have to listen to the recording to figure out where you stopped. That's bad. It happens every once in a while. He has a reverence for the work of God. Look at verse 19. It says, The vessels also that are given thee for the service of the house of thy God, those deliver thou before the God of Jerusalem. And whatsoever more shall be needful for the house of thy God, which thou shalt have occasion to bestow, bestow it out of the king's treasure house. Think about what he's saying here. He's literally giving him a key to the treasury so that if there's anything they need to serve the Lord, they've got access to it. Verse 21, And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, do make a decree to all the treasures which are beyond the river that whatsoever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, shall require of you, it be done speedily. Unto an hundred talents of silver, and to an hundred measures of wheat, and to an hundred baths of wine, and to an hundred baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. He has a certain reverence now for the work of God, and it results in him telling Ezra, whatever God tells you you need, you come and let me know, and I'll take care of it. Why, why is he behaving this way? Is it because he's proud of his country and he wants to have this great temple that he can point out and say that he's the one that did it? No. Is it because he wants to uh, somehow have a, a say-so or have his plaque put up on the front of the temple? No. I believe the reason he's responding this way is because he has a genuine fear of God. And that reverence for the things of God leads him to do these things for Ezra's sake and for the nation of Israel's sake, but more importantly for God's sake is why he's doing them. Let's pray. Lord, I pray over the next couple of weeks that you would open our eyes to the kind of influence that you would desire we have. Help us to see, Lord, that in our world today we really can make a difference as long as we place our lives in your hands. Lord, help us to utilize our platforms of influence for your honor and for your glory. Not for our praise, not for our popularity, Lord, but let it be for you. Help us to see the ways in which we can do this and then, Lord, help us to take full advantage in what time we have left to be excellent influencers for the cause of Christ. Lord, we'll praise you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.